Folks, nice to be with you again. Um, we had a practical week. I, my regular job, I suppose, is to teach in Faith Mission Bible College through in Edinburgh, and uh, we had a practical week this week where a couple of three men from Northern Ireland came over to help us get ready for Edinburgh Convention. And so yesterday, if you'd have seen me yesterday, I was laying polyfloor tiles on a, on a hallway, and tonight uh, trying to preach from Daniel chapter 11. So we certainly get a wide and varied experience, uh, which is good. Turning to Daniel chapter 11, a long chapter, uh, we might just read the first 36 verses or so, 35 verses, but Daniel chapter 11. Um, so the first bit, the first bit speaks of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. When you, see, when you hear south, picture Egypt. When you hear north, picture Syria and the Holy Lands in the middle, of course. Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others when he has gained power by his wealth. He will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear, Alexander the Great it was, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt." For some years he will leave the king of the north alone, then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not remain triumphant, for the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south, the violent men among your own people will, re will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist, even their best troops will not have the strength to stand." The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with, his, with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south, and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, 
but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. So that's, I don't know, something like 536, right through until Antiochus Epiphanes, which is about 167, so almost 400 years of, of, of history there. And then it, it zooms in on, 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 on one particular king of the north, a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. And verse 21 then says, uh, goes on, and we should think of, of, of him. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand against, to, to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with, a great, with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake his holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Maybe just a short prayer. <clears throat> Father, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for it. A passage like this tells us many things, but sometimes it, it's hard for us to get, to get our minds into it and to, and, 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 and to grasp it. And so, we, we ask for Your help to understand, but more than that, as we come to, to apply what's being said here, we pray for grace to, to live by the principles that are being taught here. And so we ask for your help just now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that makes a lot of sense to you. Um, it's hard to… Coming to that, I spent probably a week uh, with other things going on as well, but just trying to work out what, what, what I should do with Daniel 11 and how it should be preached and um, wrestled with it for a while. And 
One of the techniques that, that we can always ask when we come to a portion of Scripture is why is, it, why is it in the Bible at all? Why was it recorded in the first instance? When it was first recorded, what was the, what, what was the benefit going to be for those who, who were receiving it firsthand? And you can ask that of, of Daniel 11, but you can also ask that of the book of Daniel. And uh, maybe a little sketch would be helpful to uh, just get our minds into why Daniel recorded his life at all and why, why it's given to us in Scripture. Daniel, he was part of a group of people who, he, he, he as a young fella, as you'll know, was taken from God's land, from Jerusalem, and spent his entire life living in Babylon in a foreign country under foreign rulers with foreign or pagan religious practices. And he proved that you didn't need to be living under a theocracy. You didn't need to be living under a place where God was at the center of government in order to survive as a believer in God. Um, and doubtless, it, doubtless others who, who made that journey with him didn't live in a similar way. Some um, for example, might have been singing Psalm 137 and asking the question, um, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And removing themselves from society and just setting up their own little religious uh, grouping and taking nothing to do with the Babylonian world around them. Others might have been trying to uh, stand up against um, Babylon and get under their skin and even try to overthrow them, and were probably frustrated in doing so. Others, doubtless, consumed the Babylonian culture, and after 70 years in Babylon, they just looked like Babylonians. And we have that, those same type of approaches even in Christendom today. There are those who um, remove themselves sufficiently from society that, that they might as well not be living in the world around us. There, there are those that, um, that try to fight against the system, and there are those that just uh, absorb so much of the culture that, that they end up not being distinct at all. Um, and so, I suggest that the book of Daniel was written to assure a coming generation that regardless of who's in power, you can live for God. Um, you see, ever, ever since the people of God came into existence, ever since uh, the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, made their, their journey through the wilderness into the promised land and settled in the promised land, they had their own government, and at the center of that government was the worship of the Lord, where the, where the, where the kings were brought in. They were uh, uh, ad, ad, ad administering government, but they were supposed to be godly people, and so God was, was at the center of what they were doing. They were governed by a theocracy. But the years in Babylon were their first real taste of a different world, where the people of God were a minority people in a foreign country. And doubtless there were those among them who thought, well, we just need to we, we just need to see this out. And when we get back to Jerusalem, the status quo will be restored and we'll get back to, to uh, how things used to be and then we'll live for God. We'll just do what's, what's, what's necessary to get through this period of pain. And then after 70 years, God said, I'll take you back to, your promise, to, the, 
to the land of Jerusalem, and we'll be all right then. But this vision of chapter 11 is intended to teach them a different outlook, that even when they get back to Jerusalem, there will still be foreign rulers in power. I tell you the truth, verse 2, three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. These men were Cambyasis, Smerdis, and Darius the first, and that takes you a, a period from 530 right through to 486. And then the fourth is Xerxes, takes you through to 464. And then there's, there's about a hundred years missing, and the next king that's mentioned in this chapter is a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. This will be Alexander the Great. And then after him, Alexander the Great conquered the known world, and then after his time, his empire was split up into four different kingdoms, and the rest of these verses speak of two of these kingdoms that specifically affect God's people living in Jerusalem. The Seleucids are the people of the north, yeah, and the Ptolemies, the people uh, to the south. And one of the general themes that's easy to pick up in these first 20 verses is that there's power struggles, there's fighting and scheming, there's lies, there's corruption, there's intrigue, and in the middle of that, there's an awful lot of bloodshed. There's an awful lot of war. And who was going to suffer when they fought? Seleucids were coming down from the north wanting more territory. Who were they going to fight over? They're going to fight over the beautiful land. They're going to fight over Jerusalem and that bit in the middle. Whenever the north got stronger and they came up from the south, who were they going to try to get the hold of first? God's people living right in the middle. There's various little uh, excerpts that um, historians are, are, are able to accurately identify. It says in verse 6, the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. So the king of the south said, I'll send my daughter up to the king of the north, and if she would marry him, then we could form a big kind of coalition. But of course, the king of the north was already married, if you know any woman, you'll know that another woman coming in, is not just going to, she's not just going to shift out of the way to let her in, and she schemes and, uh, and poisons both her husband and this, this uh, young uh, princess coming up from the south, and uh, that, that's what's spoken about in, 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 in 6 and 7. And then, so the young girl that was sent up from the south, her, her brother remembers this, and whenever he comes to power, then he fights against the north, and the thing goes on and on throughout these many years. God's not mentioned at all in these 20 verses. All of this period of history that's going to affect uh, God's people because they're going to be the pawns in the middle, and yet God is not mentioned because God is not involved, is not uh, part of the thinking and the, and the philosophy of these world leaders who are playing out their power struggles. But I think what the people of God needed to realize was that though the exile would end and some would travel back south to be in Jerusalem, they would have to spend the rest of their, of their lives and the generations to come would have to live and live for God under foreign rule. No longer would they have 
a godly king at the heart of their government, but they would have to be Christians in our terms, living under a foreign pagan philosophy. And then it goes on to focus in especially on this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, verse 21 and following. He, he shouldn't even have been in power. He had seized power. And that tells you something of the kind of character he was. It wasn't even his place to be king. But he took it by intrigue and scheming and conspiracy and dishonesty. It's, it mentions early, early, early on in the, in the bit about him that he… Um, uh, a prince of the covenant will be destroyed, verse 22. Uh, he goes on to fight. So, he's a king of the north. He goes on to fight against Egypt in the south. Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes south to Egypt. He has a war in Egypt. He's fairly successful in Egypt. He's coming back up from Egypt. He stops in at Jerusalem, discovers in Jerusalem that there's some of God's people in Jerusalem are not particularly loyal to him, and he, he uh, takes the huff with them, and he kills 80,000 of the Israelite people on his way back north, just on a whim. The Jews were infuriated at this and began a fully-fledged revolt. And again, later on, he went south again to try and finish off Egypt, but he found a stronger Ptolemies in the south, and they were supported by uh, the ships from the western coastlands. Rome was getting stronger. Rome comes and pushes Antiochus Epiphanes out. Where does he go to take out his anger again? Goes back to Jerusalem. He left Egypt in 167 BC, turned his anger against Palestine, sent, the, sent his chief tax collector to Jerusalem, and initially appearing to come in peace, but on the Sabbath he began killing people and plundering the city. And then he sets up this, this um, uh, desecration of uh, thing that desecrates the temple fortress and abolishes the daily sacrifice and turns the, the temple of the living God into a temple for Zeus and sacrifices a pig. Um, on that, on that uh, temple. And so, he's an ungodly warrior who attacks the people of God, who has no time for the people of God, no regard for the people of God, and he would gladly destroy them. Truth doesn't matter to him. He's prepared to reinvent truth just however it will suit himself. He's arrogant, he's bullish, and he's a thirst for power. But he's a real character, and you get the sense, if, 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 if we had read on in these, in these later verses in Daniel 11, you get the sense that he is a type of many others who will come throughout history, who will be prepared to redefine truth to suit themselves, finishing up with um, what seems to be a description in these latter verses of the Antichrist, who is someone just a bit like Antiochus Epiphanes, someone who, who hates the people of God, someone who would gladly uh, just destroy the people of God and is arrogant and bullish and wants to exalt himself. So, what can we learn from this? What did Daniel want to relate to the people of God? He wanted them to know that just as he had lived, 
under foreign Babylonian rule, so they, their children and their grandchildren, would be able to live under foreign rule in God's strength. It's the main thrust of the book of Daniel. Daniel himself is a case study of how a person can live when the country that you're living in is not Christian, and in fact, on occasions, it throws Christians into the fiery furnace or into the lion's den. And that's why it's good for us to study Daniel in these days, because we are moving and have probably already moved from a society where Christendom was right at the heart of what we were about as a nation into a time when we are on the margins. No longer Christianity has lost its social status in our country. Society is now turning on us rather than supporting us. We, as a, as a Bible-preaching church, are labeled as traditional and backwards. We're living, so popular culture would say, by an old narrative. We're intolerant and, and, and in a so-called progressive and tolerant society. And so, how do we respond? We have a number of options. And as you, as you look at the church, look at the church in Scotland, there are a number of things that Christians think is right to do. Some try to convert the culture. Some try to do everything in our power, in their power, to force the nation's culture to reflect biblical values, to manipulate government to do something that's not in the hearts of the people to do. In Daniel's context, that would have been for him as prime minister on occasion to try and make Babylon, to try and make Babylon worship his God. But he didn't do that because he wouldn't have lasted a day in power if he tried to do that. And neither can we legislate people into the kingdom of God. And if we try, it will only lead to frustration and bitterness. Frustration for those that are trying to reform and bitterness for those who are trying to, who are being reformed without the hearts to do it. We can condemn culture. We can remove ourselves from the world. We can set up a subculture. We can build walls around our Christian society, however narrow that may need to be. People have done that and still do that. People have done that in the past. They've built monasteries, and they've moved into them, hidden themselves away, and worshiped Jesus off to the side somewhere. Or we can consume culture. Some are doing that. We, we must be relevant, whatever the cost. doesn't matter if, 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 if there's a conflict between the voice of culture and the voice of our God. We will go with the voice of culture because we don't want to be awed and we want to be in the public square at, 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 at any price. But that, while it seems attractive for a while, doesn't work in the longer term because you end up totally, in, uh, totally indistinguishable from the world around you, and you have nothing worth sharing at the end of the day. You're just like the world around you. You just turn into a Babylonian. So what did Daniel do? Daniel was a man of courage, and as we, we uh, haven't here, I'm sure you have in the past, looked through the rest of the book of Daniel, but two, two recurring themes occur in Daniel's life. Daniel 
Way back in chapter 2, he, he, he says of the Lord, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. And wherever Daniel turns up, he brings God's, God's Word or God's interpretation into the world in which he finds himself. When he's asked for the interpretation of, of a dream, he brings God's interpretation in. And he's also someone who lives by God's power. How could Daniel's three friends journey into the fiery furnace with confidence only in the power of God? How could Daniel, finding himself in the lion's den, go through that only in the power of God? And so, Daniel's um, whole story throughout the book has been to, to live by God's Word, to bring God's revelation into his society, whatever it looked like, and to live by the power of God. And so it must be for those who would follow after Daniel in the life of faith, these verses that you'll recognize in, in uh, 32, the people who know their God will firmly resist Antiochus Epiphanes and the old enemy, the devil, who's behind him. Those who are wise will instruct many how can you get through a period of persecution by living according to the Word of God? How can you get through a time when, when you're going to face the sword to be burned, captured, or plundered only by knowing and depending on, knowing our God and depending on His strength? And so what of us in an age of unbelief and the twilight of Christendom, Christianity, as I say, is no longer at the center of culture and political power, and we find ourselves at the margins of society. What we're asked to do is not complicated. It's what we've always been asked to do, and that's the most comforting thing for me as I read through Daniel. We're not, we're, 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 we're not being forced to be creative and try to find a way to reinvent ourselves in our age but in our age, to live out the Word of God with courage in the power of the Holy Spirit. God only has one system whereby His people live. That system is to know the Word of God and to live it in His strength. How, do, how, 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 are, how are we to do that? Well, we need to know our Bibles. And then we need to use our Bibles to critically evaluate the culture round about us. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There were times throughout Daniel's life when he, when he embraced certain aspects of the Babylonian system. And there were other times when he had to draw the line and say, no, that goes against what my God would have me do in this instance. I cannot bow down to a statue of a man. I only bow down to the living God. Doug Kelly, a Scottish theologian now working in South Carolina in the States. Maybe he's not Scottish. Maybe he just studied here. I can't remember. But he says, looking to Jesus Christ in the face is the way to demolish shoddy arguments and puffed-up pretensions. 
Lack of clear contact with reality leaves us prey to the demons of our culture, whereas knowledge of God in the face of Christ is the basis of every other true knowledge. How? Daniel 11 is, is telling these people, you're going to face 400 years of this type of life, where you're on the margins, where you're just pawns, in the hands of a powerful world structure who will fight over your land. They won't care about you, and some of them will actually try to annihilate you. How can you survive a period like this? Those who know their God will do exploits. Steve Timison and Tim Chester in Everyday Church say we can not only survive on the margins, we can thrive on the margins. We offer, from the margins, we point to God's coming world. We offer an alternative lifestyle, values, relationships, a community that proves incredibly attractive. As men and women who, like our Savior before us, are those who are marginal yet world-changing. So, what, what is the message of the book of Daniel? What is the message for us tonight? It is that we are in an age, already in an age, I think. Legislation is in many ways still on our side because we have a Christian heritage. But the, but the popular movement of our society is against us. But our commission is just the same, to live by God's Word. But what this what this age will help us with is it will purify our Christianity. What does it say in these verses? Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. You see, when we live in a world where the government is Christian, it's possible to just kind of slide through with a cultural Christianity. But where the world around us in all of its form is against us, we're, we're, we're forced to be the real deal, and the church will be the real deal, because those who would live for God are only those who are fully committed to the Word of God and to living in the power of God. There's no such thing as… Um, what's described here as… There's a wee bit in there about those that are kind of cultural Christians. I can't just find it. We look out at a world that our… I have children, they're just primary school age. We look out at a world that our children have to grow up in and be Christians in, and we think this is a terribly dangerous place. But the message of Daniel, the message of the Word of God is that by living by the Word of God in the power of the Spirit was able, the, the first Christians, New Testament Christianity, had to, had to pioneer a way in a Roman pagan society and we have been privileged for a long time, but we, 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 we too 
can pioneer a way. It's not complicated. It's just living the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. We left, we left Northern Ireland in um, 2012. Our, our, our children were one and a half and three at that point. As I look back now, um, if we had stayed in Northern Ireland, our, 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 our children would not be growing up in a, in a city school in Edinburgh where they're, where they're one amongst I don't know how many and just only a handful of Christians and a few hundred in the school. They would have been in a very different situation in Northern Ireland where one of the most exciting things that happens is that the young fellas at lunchtime stand along the fence to, to watch the tractors going by. It's a, it's a very different environment from what it is here in, in, in Gilmerton in Edinburgh. But the challenge is still the same. Yes, you, you, you might get an easier cultural path, but to live for God, the instructions and the challenge and the power that is needed for true, authentic Christianity is that which worked under ancient Roman rule, that which worked in the time of Daniel under Babylonian rule, and that which will work even in our day, living under a secular Scottish government. We can live and we must live the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. And if we do so, we will shine because we will show a world around us that we're living by the instruction manual and it's beautiful. There's, many, there's other things that we could say from Daniel 11, but that's probably enough. There's a little apologetic argument in here in that my historian friend was saying that these verses are an accurate record of 400 years of history, and we can look back with historical records and prove that they happened. And so there's an apologetic argument for us that here a section of the Word of God that was prophesied beforehand prophesied some fairly ridiculous things. Who would ever have thought in Daniel's day when the Medes and the Persians were in, were, were in uh, government over the whole world that a little-known kingdom called Macedon to the north of Greece, that there would be a prince of Macedon come to rule the whole world called Alexander the Great. It's just a little apologetic argument that's helpful for us to assure us that as this bit of the Word of God can be trusted, so it all can be trusted because this bit came to pass, so some of those things that we're yet waiting on will still come to pass. Another encouraging thing from this is God is still in control throughout all of these years. We'll not go into that. And something else that's helpful, when you read the Bible, unlike any other historical book, no other historical book would give so much attention to a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. Histori uh, regular history cares very little for Antiochus Epiphanes. Why is there such a focus in, in the Word of God? Because the lens of Scripture is always on Jerusalem almost always on Jerusalem. Why is it on Jerusalem? Because one day a better king would come. One day a king would come who would not just be using his people 
for, for power and, and uh, to, to just as pawns to be used in building up their uh, unholy and, and, uh, and ugly kingdoms. But one day as they kept looking to Jerusalem, one day Jesus would come. Daniel 11 is very helpful for us. It's helpful for them then because they were going out into a period of history when they would have to live for God and the world around them would be no help to them. And it's helpful for us. And it's helpful for us who are raising children. Christianity is designed to exist in any environment. We are not embarrassed in this philosophy of living the Word of God because it's the design for humanity, and it is possible. God does not ask us to do something that He doesn't give us the power to do. And so I am confident as I raise children that if they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and live by the Word of God, He will give them the power to do that. Amen.